Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father God, on this Easter Sunday, I pray that the victory Jesus won would be accepted by every person this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Easter. He is risen. Well, this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, we're looking at an excerpt from an ancient letter, a bit like a very old email, I suppose. It's written by a man called Paul uh, to a church in a city called Corinth in Greece, situated on a land bridge between the north and the south of Greece. Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It was host to a popular religion devoted to the goddess Aphrodite. And it was center of one of the most popular sports, uh, the uh, Isthmian Games, a bit like a, a sort of March Madness that took place every two years. Paul, of course, was a missionary and a church planter though he had an especial status as an apostle, that is, someone who had been personally commissioned by Jesus himself to speak with the authority of Jesus and write letters like this one uh, to speak uh, about uh, what it meant to follow Jesus and teach Christians in that regard. And the point of this brief uh, section here uh, this morning is uh, quite simple and quite important. To find meaning and purpose in our lives, we must believe not in vain. Which is, 
to believe and accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. Now let me illustrate that point for you in a couple of ways before I describe it in the context of this passage and then apply it for us this Easter. The first illustration comes from a woman I knew who had recently become a real Christian. She had grown up going to church but never truly realized the power of the gospel or encountered Jesus personally. She went through the motions but then as life caught up with her she found herself in some difficulty and she heard the story of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. She put her faith in Christ as her Lord and she became entirely new. Now this illustration is relevant to this passage because Paul is writing to Christians or people who went to church and called themselves Christians. But he knows that it's possible for people to believe in vain, as he puts it. That is, not to truly be a Christian, even though someone thinks they are a Christian. Well, this woman was like that, but then she was changed. She encountered the risen Jesus Christ by His Spirit. She was baptized and She lived as a real Christian in devotion to God and His purposes. Her life now had meaning, and she lived with joy. However, physically, uh, she became sick. She faced her upcoming death with joy. Now she was alive in Christ. There was no death. She knew where she was going, and she was looking forward to it. That was one of the strangest funerals I ever did. Much like the first Easter morning when the women came for a funeral and instead found a resurrection. You know, all Christian funerals are echoes of that empty tomb. For we shall rise too. And this woman knew it, and there was joy at her funeral. Her daughter, though, chief mourner at the funeral, though a Christian by name, did not, it seemed, have the same hope. She wept inconsolably. The picture is very vivid in my mind. I remember her climbing literally into the hearse as it was due to take the body away to the grave to hug the casket one last time. Believing in vain. My other illustration comes from a contemporary movie. It came out a couple of years ago now. It was called Inception. You may have seen it. It's a PG-13, but parents may not wish to take their children to see it all. Nonetheless, it has an interesting motif that makes the point I'm trying to show us this morning. In this movie, a person's dreams can be entered into for the purpose of espionage, to take trade secrets and sell them to the highest bidder. It's not always clear in the movie what is a dream and what is reality. Sometimes it's hard for the person truly to wake up and return to real life. Similarly, it can be hard for us to wake up to real life. Psychologists call them our maps of reality, the way we try to interpret life around us. And such maps have to be adjusted for new data. Otherwise, they, well, they become like the first IMAPS app, and we end up thinking we're going to the movie theater, but really we end up in a ditch. 
Now, you see, my friends, many of us come to the story of Easter with a map of what it's all about. I suppose most of us understand it's not actually about the Easter bunny, but about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not all of us accept that as a real historical event or live with the purpose and meaning that it offers for our daily lives. Well, in that movie, Inception, uh, that I'm using for the purpose of illustration here to begin with, there are different levels of dreaming out of which the person awakes, uh, perhaps as a metaphor for the ways in which media and movies ask us to enter into a dream state and suspend reality. And the hero of the story has a, what's called a totem. It's a spinning top that, as it always spins in a dream state, will show him whether he's dreaming or living real life. Now, such a description of what is real and what is not resonates with us today because we are a people who are constantly, nowadays, given pictures and images of alternative realities, computer games, movies, and various forms of what sociologists call screen time. You see, the Corinthians, similarly, were living in a reality where the wealth of the trade city, the pagan goddess of sex, The sports of the Isthmian Games all suggested to them that there was no certainty about life after death. And so they might as well, as Paul calls it a little later, simply eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. All the while going through some continued Christian motions in the Corinthian church. Paul is showing them that this is believing in vain. It's a dream state, not reality. And the way to find meaning in life is to accept the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead and live with the purpose that the risen Jesus alone provides. Well, that's the point that Paul is describing in the context of this passage. And he does so in three ways, facts, consequences, explanation. Now, look down with me at your Bibles. I hope you've got them open. It's especially important to do that on any day, Easter Sunday, to study the Bible And the facts he lists, you can see in verses 4 to 7. And I can tell you as a Cambridge historian that purely at a factual level, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is very strong. This letter is written soon after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul refers to people who were still alive, as he wrote. And what's more, the worldview of the people of the time was not expecting a resurrection. It wasn't what they were looking for, what? not what they were expecting. They fled after the cross. They were not expecting Jesus to come back to life. And that is why these witnesses are listed. It was as strange an event to them as it would have been to us. The Greeks, they believed in an immortal soul, not a bodily resurrection. And the Jewish people had different views on the matter, but those who expected a future life viewed it as a final resurrection. They were not expecting that Jesus would himself only bodily rise from the dead. And you can see this in various ways. You can see this by uh, the uh, description, for instance, of the early Christians' reaction to Peter when he had escaped from prison. They thought uh, that Peter had died. And then they thought that when he appeared, it must be his ghost. No one was expecting a resurrection. You see, that's why Jesus let them uh, touch him. 
why he ate food with them. They needed to be convinced. And they were. But even more factually convincing than the evidence of the witnesses is the evidence of the result subsequently. There is, my friends, no historical way you can deny that after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the world changed. Human history was radically altered. Something dramatic happened. And the early Christians, you see, simply went around preaching, He is risen. They did not force people to believe. They did not invade countries or use military aggression. Now, the most logical interpretation of the facts is that Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul does not just leave it with the facts, because to accept the facts, we need to understand a little more how it works. Otherwise, we may dismiss it as so unlikely that it could not have happened, however strong the evidence uh, may be. And so Paul then describes the consequences of the resurrection. And he describes the consequences here in the context of this passage in terms of Christ as the new Adam. This is verses 21 and 22. Paul writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so what he's saying here is this. When we realize that the whole human race is under a death sentence because of our rebellion against God, we can see how Christ, as the new Adam, provides new life for all who believe. And then he explains further that Christ is also the first fruits. This is verse 23, he writes, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Well, this is a farming illustration. Uh, the first fruits of harvest tell us that there's more harvest to come. And similarly, as Jesus first rose from the dead, so those who believe in him can be sure they will rise from the dead as well. Christ also, as a consequence, is victorious. Verses 24 to 28, he writes, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what Paul is saying here is that God in Christ is victorious. And so as God is all in all, he goes on, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, as Christ is victorious, we in him now have this cosmic purpose. As a consequence, our lives have meaning as Christians. Verses 29 to 34. So he writes, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But he is raised. And therefore, he says, verse 34, wake up. The fact of the resurrection has consequences. Christ is the new Adam, the first fruits, is victorious. And therefore, our lives in complete devotion to Jesus have eternal meaning. 
Now how, you say? Well, here comes Paul's explanation. After the facts and then the consequences, he gives two illustrations, and both of them are from nature. And he chooses nature because people say that the resurrection of the dead is impossible because it's unnatural. And so Paul, therefore, gives two illustrations from nature. He says, uh, consider a seed. Think of how that works. You know, there's an apple. It falls off a tree. The apple rots. It dies. Then the seed is sown in the ground, and a new tree grows. So with us, he says, who believe in Christ. We may rot and die, then be raised to a new bodily life. And then in verses 40 and 41, he expands from the miniature aperture of nature to the majestic, from the microscopic to the macro scale of the whole universe. Now, he's working with ancient cosmology, with ancient views of how the universe worked, but our views today of the expanding massive scale of the universe only serve to underline uh, Paul's point. So he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So what he's saying is consider the sheer scale of the universe. Now you who say a bodily resurrection is impossible, have you considered, say, dark matter? or the Higgs boson, or the distance between one galaxy and another? Paul was saying, how small must our mind be if we refuse to accept that God, the author of the universe, could have a new body for us, a glorious body, just as the glory of the sun is different from the glory of the moon. Or perhaps uh, you think in Old Testament uh, uh, Torah terms, as uh, uh, the Jews would say. And so he says that uh, Adam typifies what is to occur to those in Christ. Verse 45, thus it is written, that is in the Torah, all the way back in Genesis, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Well, the last Adam, that is Christ, a life-giving spirit. Or verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. In other words, he's saying this whole Bible story is bookended by Adam and Christ. Or perhaps you think uh, in New Testament terms. Well, he says this is an apostolic doctrine. I tell you, he writes, Verse 50, that is, I, the Apostle Paul, tell you, (laughs) flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's an apostolic doctrine. And he goes on, "It's it's a mystery revealed, a mystery that is beyond our thinking, not counter to our thinking, pointing over the horizon of infinity, not in this life contradicting our reason, beyond, not against Our minds. Behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. (laughs) This change is a sudden event. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
for the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. An apostolic doctrine, a mystery revealed, a sudden event, an irreversible change of state. Verses 53 to 54. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In other words, this is an irreversible change of state. The swallowing up of death into victory. For it is, verse 56, in principle, the end of both the sting of death and the power of sin. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with all that in mind, facts, consequences, and explanation... The application of Paul's point for us becomes clear. Paul is the prime example. They could believe in vain, but if Paul received the grace of God, then so could anyone. Anyone. He passed on the message of the gospel as of first importance, and this story came to him. Last of all, he says, as one untimely born. It's a very vivid metaphor. It's a miscarriage or an aborted child. That's how he describes himself. Last of all, the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul, a former religious zealot, who have persecuted the religious freedom of the Christians, a religious terrorist, if he could receive the grace of God, then so could anyone. First things to the last of all. Now, my friends, I want you to understand this morning that the difference that this makes is remarkable. John Patton, a pioneer missionary to the New Hebrides, tells in his autobiography how he was once challenged by someone who complained that if he went to the New Hebrides in those days, he would be eaten by cannibals. And he replied like this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. And I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And the man who'd been challenging at that point left and said, after that, I have nothing else to say. There's there's good reason for this passionate new commitment to Christ that should be the result of this Easter Sunday. There's good reason for it. Theologian Michael Green says that in the New Testament, the life to come is represented to us as continuous with this life. 
Death has been robbed of its significance. And the two poles in the Christian's existence are his conversion and the coming of Christ. Therefore, we live this life with meaning. The poet uh, George Herbert put it like this. Death, thou wast once an uncouth, hideous thing, nothing but bones. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace. In case we think this is but the fevered imagination of intemperate minds, consider the dying words of the one of the most influential scientists in human history. When the brilliant scientist Michael Faraday was dying, someone said to him, Sir, where are your speculations now? He replied, Speculation? I have none. Thank God. I am not resting my dying soul on guesswork, but on the finished work of Christ. He quoted from 2 Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. This vision that inspired Dietrich Bonhoeffer to give his life to oppose tyranny, he, he actually conducted a service for his fellow prisoners before being taken out to his death. And imagine that, and the service was around this text. 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His mercy gave us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as the guards removed Him, He sent this last message to His great friend, the Bishop of Chichester. This is the end. But for me, the beginning of of life. It changes life now. By uh, June, it was evident that the great Henry Venn was dying, and when he was told this, the prospect made him so jubilant and high-spirited that his doctor said that it was joy at the thought of dying that kept him alive for another two weeks. A life not in vain. A matter of first importance. Coming to the last of all. Even Paul, even me, even you. Now I wonder whether this Easter you would receive the grace of God. There are few more dangerous places to be than thinking you are a Christian when you are not. It is possible to have a form of faith in God, in country, in politics, in culture, in family. 
But for this faith against the specter of death to be in vain, meaningless and pointless. See, a Christian is someone who has been born again by the Spirit of God, as Sam showed us just earlier in the service. Entered the new life of Christ and will rise from the dead to be with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth forever. Is that you? It is possible to come to church, to even come to Easter services, and merely be a Christian in name. Like some of the Corinthians who were believing in vain. They said they believed one thing, they lived another way. They needed to wake up. How? By the grace of God received through believing in Jesus and His resurrection. That's how. Then the grave is not the end. Then the ancient cry, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless, is denied. For all has meaning in the light of the eternal plan of God revealed in Christ's empty tomb. Then death has no victory. Then sin has lost its sting. You can overcome sin. Then you live now for Christ, for He has conquered death and sin and hell and is your Lord. Then your life has purpose, for the grace of God has come to you in your Christs and will in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, be changed. The perishable will clothe itself with imperishable. The trumpet shall sound, and you shall be changed. And then your life now is not in vain. It has meaning for the matter of first importance. The grace of God in the gospel through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has come to you, even if last of all. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning that no one would uh, leave this building without receiving that grace of God through believing in Jesus Christ and His resurrection bodily from the dead. Father, I pray for those of us who do so believe that we would live lives of commitment, meaning, purpose, joy, because we're part of your majestic plan revealed in Christ. 
and we too will rise. We thank you, Father, that all this is ours in Christ and in Him alone, in whose name we pray. Amen.